Second Peter chapter three verses eleven through thirteen. Second Peter three verses eleven through thirteen. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bless your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable your word to to be of great use in our lives. We pray that you would prick our conscience, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would comfort and encourage us in the word. We pray that you would do this because we are cognizant of the fact that we can understand nothing unless you enable and help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what motivates us to live? <clears throat> That's a good question. Uh, I was convinced. Uh, I was convinced that this is uh, an appropriate uh, sermon illustration to begin this week uh, with because I read it yesterday. It's very relevant. It's contemporary. But what 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 motivates us to live? What goals are we pursuing? What are the most important things that we wish to do before we die? What what constitutes our best life? To use that phrase that we we hear from so many different places, uh, we hear it uh, and, and we, we read about it in books, we hear it on television, we hear about it online. Uh, the most important thing is that we, be, we live our best life now. Well, what does that mean and what does what constitutes really the best life? One man's uh, motivation is clear, as I read about this yesterday. His name is Brian Johnson. He's a 46-year-old tech entrepreneur. Uh, He is trying to reverse the aging process by spending millions of dollars on a team that constantly monitors and watches over his bodily processes. Uh, The intention and the goal is to get his body into a position where uh, all of the calculations that surround his heart uh, his pulmonary system, all the rest of it, uh, to be that of an 18-year-old. But one reads this, but in the in the middle of it all, we we recognize that 18-year-olds died too. Um, but he wants to be an 18-year-old, and the goal is to get his 46-year-old organs to look and act like an 18-year-old uh, and his or her organs. They say that they have calculated precisely his body. Uh, his his bones, he has the bones of a 30-year-old. Well, he's 46. That, that sounds very, very good, but the truth is they're not the bones of an 18-year-old, and I'm not sure how you can reverse the course of time. They say he's got the heart of a 37-year-old. Uh, if you ask me, I, I think he's getting older. He has a very restrictive health regimen to reduce his biological age, and that includes taking 111 pills every day, wearing a baseball cap that shoots red light into his scalp, collecting his own stool samples, and sleeping with a tiny jetpack attached to a very sensitive part of his body. The only things in his 
in his bedroom, uh, very Spartan, is his bed and a laser face shield. Uh, he uses for collagen growth, wrinkle reduction in the device uh, that he wears. He awakens before 6 a.m. He has to me- measure his weight, his body mass, index, his hydration level, body fat, and something else called pulse wave velocity. Uh, he has to sit under a light therapy lamp uh, to reset his circadian rhythm, take his inner ear temperature to monitor changes in his body. But this is what he says when he's asked about his motivation and why he's doing it. I have a relationship with the 25th century more than I have a relationship with the 21st century. I don't really care what people in our time and place think of me. I really care about what the 25th century thinks. I don't know what his fascination is with the 25th century. He says this, We have a whole bunch of ideas about what it means to exist. We have all these ideas about what is happiness and other things. We're walking into a future where we no longer have control. We are willing to divorce ourselves from all human custom, everything, all philosophy, all ethics, all morals, all happiness. He sounds like a very, very deeply unhappy and troubled man. And he is convinced that what's going to get him into a place, a position of happiness, is a suspension of his present happiness and to live an austere stark uh, present in order to somehow save an unknown future and to become part of that while neglecting the sunshine outside, the blessings of God's creation, and fundamentally what Scripture says, what, what we are going to affirm this morning leads to human flourishing, more than that, to, to the blessed life. Peter is writing his exposition in A.D. 68. He's martyred. uh, He's writing before 68. He's martyred, we we understand historically, in A.D. 68 uh, in Rome, uh, around somewhat around the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, And so he's writing. Most likely A.D. 67. You remember what he said in chapter 1 of this same book. He knows... He knows that he's soon going to be with the Lord. He's going to depart his earthly tent. Uh, He knows that the Lord has told him in some way, has communicated to him that he will not live forever, that his life will soon be forfeit. And he's facing his own death. And Jesus' death is very much in his thinking as well. It's very much in the thinking of the early church because Jesus has left them only only a number of years before and not that long ago. And many of their own number are dying and uh, many are being persecuted. Uh, soon the Apostle Paul will be put to death. Soon Peter will be put to death. And he's writing to a church that's filled with false teachers, men who are coming into various local congregations and asserting that Jesus has already come or that they should not live in an expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. Peter has warned them. He has warned them repeatedly. He has, in chapter 2, explicitly stated what, what his perspective on them is, that they will suffer, that they will, they will be rebuked. They are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. Black darkness has been reserved for them, especially if they mislead the people of God and lead them into a, a spirit not of expectation, but a spirit that says, surely the Lord has already come, or we ought not to expect at all the return of the Lord, which is the motivating principle in the life of the believer, is it not? 
The Lord is coming. Therefore, there is there are implications for how I live right now. How I live right now is built upon my expectation of the Lord coming. If if today is the day before tomorrow, I, I'm planning on a a wonderful expedition, what will that mean? Well, it will mean that today, and frankly, even long before today, I ought to have been be, begun planning for that trip. I ought to make sure that various licenses are in place. I ought to make sure that I have enough money in pocket, that I've been to the bank, that the money that I need for incidentals is there, that, that, that there's room on my credit cards for an emergency. I ought to make sure that I have a ticket. I ought to make sure that, that, that my transportation is arranged. I ought to make sure that food will be available, that I'm welcome into the, wherever this locality of wherever this expedition or exploration takes place that, that I'm supposed to go. I, I need to make sure I can get in there. I ought to make sure that I arrange with my coworkers and workers. I ought to make sure that I've arranged with my family all the various expectations and obligations I have day to day. Planning goes into departure. And as it concerns the departure of God's people from this world and the return of Jesus Christ, there is planning that must take place. There is a, a life of committed living in light of that future expedition, as it were, to heaven. The Lord is coming. Peter has affirmed that in the earlier portions of this chapter. The Lord is coming. The Lord is returning. The last days, mockers will come with their mocking. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Surely, since the prophets, since the patriarchs, day after day has come and nothing has changed. We have observed no serious, significant change in time or the process of time. Surely we ought not to live with a spirit of expectation of the return of the Lord. Peter says, well, they fail to calculate a certain number of things, not the least of which is that with the Lord a thousand years is as one day. And a thousand days is as unto a year. The Lord is, the Lord examines his creation. The Lord uh, is maintained and has reserved for fire the world, the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And and God formed the earth uh, out of water and by water. And uh, the Lord knows. The Lord has decreed. The Lord is clarified that he is coming again. That all that we observe will come to an end. A thousand years, like one day, all things are coming at some point, according to God's decree, to an end. And so the Lord, as he concluded in verse 9, is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, for all, but for all to come to repentance. And last week we explained what that means. Well, Jesus' death is very much in Paul's, uh, Peter's thinking. And his own death is very much in his thinking. And he has had a priority that in writing he wants very much for those who have come, uh, who are in southwest and southeastern Turkey, uh, to receive this word from him. That there, there is the coming of the Lord. There is therefore a spirit of expectation that must be prevalent in the people of God. And when that is questioned, we need to recall the very nature of God, who is a spirit, infinite, 
eternal and unchangeable in his being and wisdom, power and holiness and justice. He is established and decreed and he will not change. God is not somehow flexible so as somehow he is going to put off that time or he is somehow capricious that he will come at a time when it's most inconvenient. No, he will come at a time according to his own choosing, according to that which most glorifies the Son of God. Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 24, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what night at the time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. And so Jesus is affirmed and Peter is now strengthening and adding to it that a day of judgment is coming. That day is coming. A day of judgment ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, we might say, well, what, what is the new earth and the new heavens? What, what is this expectation? Well, Isaiah chapter 65 and various other passages, 66 as well, and Revelation 21 all say a great deal about what the new heavens and the new earth are. John saw it descending from the heavens. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. No, no, no more chaotic sea. No more dangerous sea. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes and descends upon this new heaven and the new earth. And there is a loud voice from heaven. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And the first things have passed away. And Jesus himself who sits upon that throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. It is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. John goes on to describe the new heavens and the new earth. There is a temple in the midst. There is a throne in the midst. And from that throne flows an ever-living stream of water. God's people are able to slake their thirst there. And it is unending. It is deeper than one imagines. And... Therefore, it, it cannot come short. It cannot dry out and glory and honor of the nation stream into that kingdom. Nothing unclean enters into that kingdom. Nothing that practices abomination and lying. But only those whose names are, names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We will not be in need of any sun or moon, but rather the very presence of God. The Lord God will illumine his people such that we will see like we have never seen before. There is proof, you know, not that we are need the proof. We simply need the word of God. But there is proof even within the creation that we observe. The second law of thermodynamics, and, and I don't want to misstate it. I'm not a scientist, but 
It, it relates to heat and energy as it is used or transferred or transformed. But but it 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 is involved. What's involved in the process is is a certain amount of entropy. In other words, energy that is wasted or decreased. So as it's used, as it as it is active, it it decreases. So we look at the evidence of our world. We look at the the sun. Even modern scientists without any heavenly or biblical calculations, will tell you that our Earth has an expiration date. We don't know what that date is per se, but but it has an expiration date. It can only go on for so long. As it continues to burn, more and more energy is used and wasted. And in other words, all energy is, is running down. The sun is running down. One day, the sun will no longer shine. And that's what Peter has in view here. And not just simply because of the second law of thermodynamics, not simply because energy simply runs out, but because God has chosen a day when all things will come to an end. The sun will no longer shine and the moon will no longer reflect the the shine, the illumination of the sun. All will go dark. And all things in heaven, all heavenly bodies will cease, will melt will fall, will come to an end. There is coming a day in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Because of all of this, the question is asked of us this morning, what kind of persons ought you and I to be? What kind of persons ought you and I to be in light of that fact that Christ is coming again. The elements will melt with intense heat. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you planning for it? Does your life evidence a life of careful, thoughtful planning for the return of Jesus Christ? Such that you and I are anticipating the return of Christ and prayerfully asking the Lord, use me until that day. Lead me in the paths of righteousness. Do not let me go astray, but rather God, illumine that path, light that path according to your word. Show me the way and I will live within it. You remember what we read from Hebrews chapter 1 last week. We are in the last days. Some say that we have to wait until the return of Christ. Certain things need to take place. There are still yet some signs that have to be observed. The last of God's elect must be brought into his kingdom. The last preaching of the gospel must take place. The man of lawlessness must be revealed. The spirit of lawlessness and of sinfulness in our world must must become even more egregious than what we observe even now. But we are in those last days. Hebrews 1.1 affirms that. In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom also he made the world. Well, Christ has a plan, and this is it, dear friends. His plan is that he will bring all things to a final consummation, That plan will ripen fast and we are to prepare. We are to prepare and we are to live in such a way that we have that his plan very much in our mind. New heavens and a new earth. These will be ushered in. The creation longs for it, according to Romans. 
It longs for it. it. It has a longing for that redemption. What is the new heavens and the new earth look like? Are they somehow a restart of God's created work? Or is simply God restoring what he has made? That's a question for another day, a question for theologians. But the truth is that the world that we observe today, uh, this will not be what we see when Christ comes again. It will be remade in whatever form or fashion it takes. No longer will we see decay and decline. No longer will entropy be observed in our created world, but rather glorious, blessed, beautiful, good things. Isn't that what God proclaimed over his creation? It is good. After he created in the second day, first day, he said, it is good. After the second day, he said, this is good. After the third day, it is good. And he did so after each day. And he looked upon what he had made and said, it is good. And we will observe that recreated, reformed, rebuilt, remade creation in all of its good and glorious beauty and order. Restoration will take place of all that is beautiful and good as God proclaimed it. Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit. He will never reign and never rule and never trouble you or me again. All of God's created beauty and order will be reformed and remade. And all that curses, all that brings us low, all that causes pain or struggle or trial will be removed. So you and I should look for this. Are we waiting for it? This is the attitude Peter calls for us to have. Looking for and hastening or waiting for. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking for again and again, he says. We should be looking for it. Are we looking with faith to God's provision of a day when Christ is coming again, when all things will be remade new? Or are we so enamored with this world that we do not want the next one yet to come? We want to experience new things. We have certain expectations on our bucket list of things that we want to do, places we want to see, uh, geography to which we want to go, and maybe we aren't quite ready to return to the Lord or to see the new heavens and the new earth come. We have a certain number of priorities we wish to see fulfilled, the things we want God to do before he comes again. And yet the new heavens and the new earth are incomparably more beautiful, more excellent than anything that we could ever observe in this world. All that is good and holy and just and glorious is reserved for us. God God is bringing that day to fruition according to his decree. And the day has been appointed. Jesus clarified that there, even the Son of Man is not privy to the specific day. And that day has been planned by God the Father and it is coming. And so we can hasten that day. How can we hasten God's decree? God's plan is not flexible. There is a day appointed. 
But this is a view from our perspective that we can hasten it. We, we can live in a spirit of expectation. We can work and evangelize and proclaim the coming day of the Lord and pray and cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And in that expectation, we ourselves are brought closer and more quickly and more fervently to that day that God has decreed. We must patiently await that day while earnestly longing for it. We must let that day be a determining factor in the course of our lives such that we are changed by the spirit of expectation of it. The crux of the argument that Peter wants us to get across this morning is if this is what's going to happen to the cosmos in a moment, in the blink of an eye in judgment, how should we then live? What should we love most? What should get us up in the morning? And what should give us certainty when we lay down our heads at the end of the night? We as Christians should not focus our sight upon this world like that man, like that man Brian who is so fixated upon living in this world. He talks about being fascinated with the 25th century, but but he's living within the 21st century in such a way that he's suspending all of his present enjoyment and his understanding and apprehension of God as creator. He's not examining his body himself and finding there is a designer, there is one who has fearfully and wonderfully made me. There is a God to whom I must one day give an account of my life. He's not in any way considering these things. Rather, he is saying... I am a law unto myself. I desire, therefore, having no understanding of what the future holds, I will live for the now. I will live for my future in the now. And so he suspends all the blessings of God, even the God who gives grace uh, even to the entire world and the enjoyment of all that he has made. He refuses all of it and spends millions on doing so. What a sad Sad life. The very bad and miserable existence to somehow think that your future depends upon gathering your stool sample in the morning. No, it depends upon the mercies of God. Your future depends upon your preparation even now in coming to Jesus Christ, in acknowledgement of the fact that one day Christ is coming again, so every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean for you right now? Not that you need to fire a red light into your scalp, but that you need to make certain that you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ the Son. And so what do you do? You, 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 in utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see and your ears to hear, and you recognize that one day, yes, Christ is coming again, then right now you need to give your life to Jesus Christ and profess faith in Christ and believe that He died for your sake, that His, his blood was shed in order to cleanse you of your sin so that one day you can stand before God with a clear conscience and a bold face saying, I know that I can stand before you. I know that I'm in. I'm coming to to face my Savior because He has died for me, and His life is efficacious for me. His blood has availed for me. My life is hid with Him. Christ is my righteousness. 
Well, the believer believes those things. So how can we hasten the day by believing and affirming and returning to those same truths every single day? Animating ourselves day by day and the entirety of our lives and our motivation for getting out of bed and for putting our head down on the pillow is a certainty that we belong to the Lord. Motivated by that one principle, my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again. The one whom I love is coming again. One day I will see him face to face. So we must patiently await for that day while longing for it. We should focus our sight, dear friends, upon the return of Christ, upon the world to come. Christians are not prone, are often prone to grow lax, to leave off following Christ's indictment and exhortation in Matthew's gospel. A spirit of neglect in many Christians and a spirit in the, uh, as present of, uh, in our own generation, a spirit of the age in the churches that we observe that says that God wants you holy and happy, wealthy and wise here now and neglects any thought, any consideration of future expectation or of eternal life. I've even heard some preachers say that eternal life is not the most significant thing, that we ought to come to Christ for the material benefits that we reap from him now. How foolish. Even Jesus said, if you believe, if you have faith, you have eternal life. Eternal life is very much in view for the believer. It is what our soul's desire is, not just that we would live eternally as Mr. Brian, as I read earlier of him, as he so desires, and and it is so easy. You think of it. Is it not tragic? He wants eternal life. And so he's assembled a team around him to watch his bodily processes age, and he cannot change that process. One day he will die. Eternal life is held out before him. Only believe. Only believe. Believe in the eternal Son of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. The one who hung upon the tree, whose blood was spilled, who surrendered his life as an atonement for sin. Believe and you will have eternal life. How simple. You don't need a team assembled around you and you don't need millions of dollars. You can be utterly penniless and believe and be saved And be promised eternal life because Christ has come for the weakest. And the power of God is most displayed in those who are foolish and weak. We wonder sometimes as discouraged Christians, just to make a broad application from this passage. Sometimes we wonder, well, where is God? We look at the world that we are in today and we I, I, I know you feel as I do. We have seen the world in the last 10 years uh, go almost in a hundred years in a direction in the, in the wrong direction, the wrong way. It seems that wickedness has quickened up such that there used to be a long uh, period of time in which wickedness or wicked practices would be progressively, slowly embraced. But now we are quickly, rapidly going from one to the next extreme. We can see it coming. If it's mentioned today, it's next year's obligation.
Where is God? Why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 78. We proclaim Maranatha and we beg the Lord to rend the heavens and to come down. Where is He? Why does He delay? Well, as we read last week in Bible study, the Lord, at least one reason, and there are many, many reasons for why God has established all things according to His own timing. God has His purposes. They will ripen fast. They will unfold according to His decree. But at the very least, God desires that all who are part of the kingdom of God, all for whom Christ died, must come in. And so he suspends his judgment until he is pleased to bring all for whom Christ died into the kingdom of God. We wonder where he is. Well, God is actively and perfectly carrying out his plan. Nothing can thwart it nor turn it aside. No one can stay his hand. As the wonderful hymn says, When when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved diverse shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll, I'll be there. Let us lay before the master from dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. What a wonderful thing to anticipate the coming day of the Lord. To to know that Christ has died for us. To know that Christ is coming again. That we'll be with Him. And there's some description of what it will be like there with no tears, no suffering, no pain. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. We will never be absent from Him again. We will be near the One that we love. His gaze will be upon us. His face will lighten every day, every moment. There will no longer be a sea, the chaos of the sea, nor the darkness of night. What a wonderful thing to anticipate. He has inscribed heaven upon our souls, even now, and we long for it. So what kind of persons are we? We are to be like Christ, to long to be like Him, to be holy, to be with Him where He is. There's motivation here to live a godly life, to commit to to godly living in this godless age. It's inevitably yours by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. He is your anchor. He is your energy in godly living. And as He is poured into you, there is no entropy. But rather, God will cause His Word to take root and you will walk forth becoming being conformed more and more, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Are you hungering, dear friends, and thirsting as we conclude for righteousness? As you think about life, as you think about what motivates you day by day, as you think about what purposes you're pursuing, as you think about what motivates you most in life, are you pursuing that very kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells? Mature believers long for and press on toward righteousness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, the kingdom of God is yours. It's yours. You're already in it. The imprint of heaven is already upon you. You see its value. You delight in what delights 
our God and our Creator? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you know we, we can never perfectly perform in this world such that we can establish a certain body of righteousness within ourselves? We can never do it. Righteousness is something which God alone provides. It's possessed only within himself. When we do even our best, even when we we have had a wonderful day, when we have abstained from sin and done the best that we possibly could do, we've only done our duty. We've not super arrogated in any sense of the word. We've not done more than we ought to. We can't add anything to God. And even what we have done is only by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit. He is motivated, he has moved, he is gifted, he is enabled, he's done all of it. Yes, we are active, but he himself is the one who must prompt and move and press. Righteousness is the very essence of God. To him, therefore, must a sinner go to receive this required righteousness. Faith alone is the instrument by which that righteousness is received. This is received then not by entitlement or right or determination, but by grace. And when new life is created within us, we have new affections, new loyalties, new desires, a new way of living, and it's born out of this work of God in us, this work of regeneration. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? There is a place, dear friend, where righteousness dwells. Righteousness belongs there. It is featured there. It is the, it is the home of that place. It lives there. It's, it's the theme of that place. It's endemic to the location where God is. Righteousness dwells. Where God's people are perfected. Sin no longer holds sway. No longer represents a temptation for God's people. Where the former sinner redeemed by the grace of God is truly freed completely and utterly freed to obedience and to live as God intends for his people, no longer beset by the pressures of an oppressive world. What manner of persons ought you to be? In light of these truths, in light of this reality, in light of the return of Jesus Christ, in all that it portends by blessing and grace and mercy, in all that it portends by way of Immense blessing poured out through God's beloved Son. What manner of persons ought we to be in lives of uh, in conducting our lives according to holiness and godliness? May God enable us to walk in holiness and godliness in preparation for an anticipation of righteousness, the righteousness which is embodied in the eternal and glorious Son of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to anticipate such a kingdom. The coming of the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of God in which righteousness dwells. Well, Lord, give us a longing and a desire for it. Don't let us be caught up in somehow prolonging the years that we have in this world. Nonetheless, Lord, don't don't let us become foolish stewards who do not take care of what you have given, but, but keep us from an idolatry of self. Keep us from idolizing long life. Keep us from the pervading hopelessness that must afflict such a person that places 
all of their stock in this world, in this body. Lord, your word is truth. Bind us up in that truth. Lead us into all truth. Show us that the kingdom of God will soon come. That the new heavens and the new earth will soon come. Let us mark that with God a thousand years is as one day, and, and one day is a thousand years. Well, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to mark that our timing may not be yours, or most certainly is not yours, but you are a God of infinite calculations who is inflexible in that you have decreed a day when Christ will come. You'll glorify the sun in the heavens and all All humanity, all of creation will bow to him. Oh, Lord, we long for such a day of the manifestation of righteousness in the Son of God, displayed in the heavens. The new heavens and the new earth come, and the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, descending upon the earth where you, O God, your Son, And the Holy Spirit will dwell amongst your people. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. We we desire to hasten that day. Hasten that day in us, preparing us for that day. Help us, Lord, to mark holiness and godliness as things to be pursued more more than anything else. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to do this, that you would work this in us according to your grace through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and sing hymn number 465?